If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Hola. Hello. This call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow. Ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow. Now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier. Thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Atlassian software like Jira, Confluence, and Trello help power global collaboration for all teams so they can accomplish everything that's impossible alone. Because individually we're great, but together we're so much better. That's why millions of teams around the world, including 75% of the Fortune 500, trust Atlassian software. Learn how to unleash the potential of your team at Atlassian.com. That's A-T-L-A-S-S-I-A-N.com. Atlassian. Have you ever spotted McDonald's hot, crispy fries right as they're being scooped into the carton? And time just stands still. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine. Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. In April 1776, as George Washington's forces were preparing to defend New York and Britain faced the loss of its American colonies, London society and its newspapers were focused not on events across the Atlantic, but on the trial of a widowed Duchess Countess, Elizabeth Chudley. The charge against her? Bigamy. Elizabeth's trial would become one of the most famous of the age, igniting the interest of two future kings and the glittering social set of the day. In today's episode, you'll be hearing from the, from the author and historian Catherine Ostler, whose new book, The Duchess Countess, The Woman Who Scandalised a Nation, reconsiders Chudley's story and the reaction of Georgian society. Putting the questions to Catherine was our acting digital editor, Eleanor Evans. So we are talking today about your new book, which is Duchess Countess, The Woman Who Scandalised a Nation, which tells the story of Elizabeth Chudley, who is uh, just a fascinating 18th century figure who you write was, um, quote, the great anti-hero of the Georgian era. So I guess we could start perhaps by asking, how did you first come to Elizabeth's story? Well, I came to it through two routes, really. The primary route was I came across her in Simon Seabag Montefiore's book, Catherine the Great, and 
Potemkin, which is a sort of terrific portrait of the Russian court in the late 18th century. And as I was reading it, this chapter began with this extraordinary sort of English woman turned up on this private yacht and tried to sort of seduce the Russian court into being her friend. And she was calling her, he said, she was calling herself the Duchess of Kingston, but she'd run away from London in disgrace. So she turned up in Russia with a menagerie of sort of monkeys and parrots and an orchestra and some oil paintings that she'd sort of relieved from her late husband's estate of his relatives. Um, and, and I was very struck by this slightly bonkers, eccentric sounding person who I'd never heard of. So I went down a sort of research tunnel of reading about her. And this was slightly triggered by the fact that as an English, I'd read English at university and my favourite part that I'd done a lot on was the 18th century. And I'd always been struck by, obviously in many ways, they're so unlike us, it's pre-industrial revolution, but how in other ways they were so like us. They have this huge capacity for gossip and this viciousness and this sort of Pope and Swift. Uh, these people wrote the funniest, cruelest poetry. And I'd always been sort of intrigued by their methods, particularly as I'd been a journalist in my career. And this, the 18th century is really sort of the birth or certainly the flourishing of the British press. So, and I realised that this was, this woman um, attracted me from many angles, not only because I wanted to find out her personal story, but the more I read about her, the more I realised she was a, a creature of newspapers, really. She was gossiped about, she was analysed, people drew her, they drew prints of her, they were, they did this sort of, feels very British, perhaps it isn't, but it feels it's sort of very kind of British thing of being intrigued by her, enamoured with her, admiring her, and also wanting to sort of, having a sort of savage appetite for her downfall. And I looked at this, I thought, this is so strange and so timeless. And yet, the more she was attacked, the more she wanted to sort of pop back up again. So it sounds sort of perverse, but I was really intrigued by her humiliation and her reaction to it. Yes, undoubtedly, that um, that scandal and the savaging at the hands of um, press and public is a, is a really fascinating aspect. Um, and to, to situate our listeners a bit in her story first, um, can we talk a little bit about her early years, her upbringing? Where does she fit in Georgian society? Okay, so she's in that sort of slightly perilous Jane Austen position, 100 years earlier, of course, but of being an upper-class woman who doesn't have any money. So she's sort of connected to the West Country gentry. She's the granddaughter of a landed baronet, but primogeniture means that her uncle, not her father, gets all the money. Um, rather peculiarly, her parents were, in fact, first cousins, and her family was incredibly important to her because she was a Chudley on both sides. Um, they're well connected. So her father becomes the lieutenant governor of the Royal Hospital at Chelsea. And for the first few years of her life, she has this rather idyllic upbringing in, on the banks of the River Thames in Chelsea. And 
her father has a sort of, you know, this rather wonderful job looking after all these lovely sort of old pensioners and eating in the dining room around great art. But then he died um, quite suddenly and they were thrown out of the hospital and they moved to uh, Mayfair, which was a sort of building site on the edge of the city. And the mother had to take in a lodger. So there's this sort of early sort of shock in her life, really. There's also a life in rural Devon because her father had a small estate there. But she really sort of begins her public life in her early 20s through her uncle's best friend. He pulls strings for her and she becomes a maid of honour to the newish princess of Wales, who's called Princess of Augusta, who's a German princess who arrived speaking no English at the age of 16 to marry Frederick, Prince of Wales, who should have been king, but predeceased his father. So George II's oldest son. But while he's alive, they have a sort of electric court at Leicester House in Leicester Square, which is where they live. And George II um, has his court, but his wife has died and he hates male competition. So if anyone's witty or knowledgeable, he won't have them anywhere near him. So he has this very boring court at Kensington Palace and the Waleses um, sort of are a magnet for all the sort of glamour and the intrigue and the fun. And she joins this sort of rolling cast of about six maids of honour and what they're meant to do or what they generally do is they join, they find husbands and then they move on because you can only be a maid of honour if you're unmarried. But it's a wonderful opportunity for a girl. In fact, for an upper class girl, it is the only opportunity there is of having a job because they're not, they're not educated enough to be governesses and the law, the you know, yeah, the judiciary, politics, all of those things are banned, barred to women. So this is the only opportunity you can get. So they're in very hotly contested posts. And so the girls who win them are the objects of absolute fascination. Everything is written. People are very rude about them because they're sort of envious and fascinated. You know, what are they wearing? Who are they flirting with? Who, who are they going to marry? What have they said? You know, they get a bad reputation for sort of playing silly jokes in church. And they're sort of, they're like it girls of the day. So she becomes one of those. But most of them have a protective family to make sure they make wise choices. Um, So as we see in sort of Bridgerton, say, you've got this, the mothers or the brothers sort of, guarding the girl from her urge to make mistakes. But in Elizabeth's case, unfortunately, her brother died young and her mother is very absent in her story for reasons I just... I I think that the father died and the brother died and one... In my head, the mother sinks into some sort of depression because she just sort of disappears. She pops up again later and becomes housekeeper at Windsor Castle. But So Elizabeth is left to her own devices, sort of semi under the guidance of a slightly overly romantic, perhaps, aunt, 
who and goes off to a country house and makes a terrible mistake, really, which is she late at night marries a man she barely knows. Um, and it uh, turns into a disaster from whence the whole story springs. Right. So I'm sure we might talk about this a little bit later on when we perhaps get to um, what happens. But can we talk a bit more about the marriage conventions of the time and how how this marriage was kind of conducted in this clandestine way and what that meant for its legitimacy or, or not? Yes. Well, sure. So the great difference between this period and everything that came after is the 1753 Marriage Act, which was brought in by Lord Hardwick specifically to, de- to deal with a very specific problem, which is as a result of the reformation and various sort of uncertainties in British law had meant that there were three types of marriage in the early 18th century. There was the sort of accepted, most respectable church kind with the done within canonical hours by a proper vicar in a church. Everybody turns up as we imagine. But unfortunately, there were two other sorts. There was the wobbliest of the lot, which was a contract marriage, which was this sort of ancient law that meant that anyone who said to anyone in the present tense, I wed thee, made some kind of verbal promise, could argue that they were married. Of course, this was quite ridiculous because people could say it and then the uh, if two people are in a room, the man or woman, whatever, less frequently, could change their mind and it wasn't Nobody could prove it either way. So it was just a complete farce, that one. But the more, more dangerous kind was the clandestine one, which is people, as long as they got hold of a clergyman or someone who said they were a clergyman anywhere, people could have a form of marriage. And there were no, all the things that we have now, even a registry office like witnesses or reading of the bans or a register these things weren't necessary. So what happened was um, people, families would find themselves with their beloved son and heir or their daughter suddenly announcing that they were married without their knowledge and they couldn't tolerate this loss of control. But equally, people who were very young could make very sudden mistake regrettable mistakes you know they were 18 uh, the equivalent i always think of in my head is like those celebrity vegas weddings where everyone's drunk a bottle of whiskey and they drive off into the desert and there's an elvis impersonator outside in a cadillac you know it was that but suddenly it's legally binding and they can't get out of it because the difference between now is you had a vegas wedding you could get divorced then you couldn't get divorced or only by an act of parliament so you need an enormous amount of money and it would destroy the women's reputation. So you, you had a situation where you could get into marriage very easily and you couldn't get out of it. And that's the position my heroine, Elizabeth, anti-heroine, found herself in. OK, so yes, yeah, so Elizabeth is on, on one hand, obviously got a very prestigious position at the court of the, the Prince and Princess of Wales. But then she makes this 
this mismatch. What what can you say about Augustus Hervey? I think you call him uh, at one point uh, the English Casanova. Yes. Uh, what kind of character is he? Well, he's an interesting character, I have to say. He wrote a diary that has been published. And when I read it, I did I did totally get it because I, you sli- do slightly fall in love with him from his diary. He was... Okay, so oddly, she was quite naive in a way. Although she got this job, she'd grown up in the sort of half in Chelsea, but mostly in the wilds of Devon, sort of stroking her pony. And he he was only, he was three years younger than her. He was only 20, but he'd been at sea since he was 12. So he was already, he'd had written, he wrote this very, very revealing diary, which is why it's called The English Casanova, because we know what he got up to. And he was already a man of the world and he was an experienced seducer. But he was incredibly, he had a wonderful way with words. Uh, His father was the great diarist of the early 18th century who was called John Harvey, Lord Harvey, and he was a courtier. And the mother was a maid of honour. And he had these two sort of brilliant parents and he was very, very brave and sort of an adventurer, but a very well-educated adventurer. And he's just, there's this wonderful story later on where there's, um, he's in Italy and he sees there's a fire in the port. One of the ships sets fire and nobody knows what to do. So everyone just stands there watching it. But if the fire spreads, the whole port will burn down. It'll be a disaster. It'll spread to the neighbouring you know, sort of warehouses. And So he single-handedly runs, takes the ship... Out, jumps on board, takes the ship out to sea and sort of blows it up, jumps in the water and springs back to shore, at which point he becomes a sort of national hero. So he's slightly eccentric kind of, but he's very flamboyant, very colourful, totally fearless, which is why he always gets into scrap. And very impulsive. I think the problem really is that they were too similar. They were both impulsive slightly neglected by their parents, intelligent, passionate, adventurous. And this was a sort of combustible mix that meant they sort of, oh, let's get married. And then suddenly he becomes enormously successful later on in the Navy. But at that point, no one had any money. They were very young. No one had given permission for their marriage. They had no means of supporting themselves. And he went, he almost immediately went away for two years. And by the time he came back, she certainly had moved on. Right. So this this clearly Im- impulsive match leads to a situation that d- does sour in terms of the marriage. But a- an aspect of it that um, certainly kind of I was really attracted to through her character is the way in which she then kind of comes to straddle the two courts that you already mentioned. So you've got the Prince and Princess of Wales's court that's very glamorous, and then you've got George II's court that is a very different picture. And yet she manages to ingratiate herself in both. And can we talk a bit about her character and how she comes to do that? Because that was a really fascinating aspect for I, me. I'm glad you picked that up. I was really intrigued. I was really fascinated by that. And I think that comes to her situation, which is she's basically alone. So other people have mentors and dowries and sort of families to help them. And she knows, you know, she's got this sort of Becky Sharpish, it's me or nothing. So she knows she's got to sort of drive her own story, as it were. So she 
realises that she can't afford, other people can put themselves in one camp or the other, she can't afford to do that. Plus, through the Georgian era, you've got this great gambling uh, sort of question, really, which is in each generation, are you going to align yourself with the heir or the present king? And you don't know whether the present king, how long the present king's going to live or what people really weren't expecting with Frederick, Prince of Wales, is that he'll never be king. So there are people who split themselves into the camps, hoping either that the present king will live forever or that the current, or that the heir will take over quickly. But she's too clever to do that. She decides she's going to try keep a foot in both camps. And she manages it, and she is really the only person who manages it, which is a credit to her courtier skills and when she after her trial she goes off and she tries to ingratiate herself in various courts in Europe and she writes a letter to one of her friends who was a sort of displaced Polish prince and it's all about she has got a sort of Machiavellian streak really she thinks a lot about how she's going to do this and she uses her obvious charms which are beauty and wit and a sort of energy that she has to her But she also says, if you're going to travel, don't travel with a retinue. Don't travel with anyone whose interests might rival your own. They might undermine you. Make sure... And she knows she's the sort of queen of the sort of ingratiating letter. And what she does is she sort of leverages one connection off another. So she'll write to the Pope. Um, She'll say, the Electress of Saxony, who was a dowager, who was her great friend, she'll say write to the electorate. So the Pope was saying how wonderful it was when you came to Rome. And then she'll write to the Pope and say, the electress of Saxony sends all her good wishes. And she sort of positions herself. Um, So she's very good at leveraging power, really, and knowing how to get what she wants in a way, although it all goes wrong later. Yes, yes, indeed. Um, I think as well as obviously that clear talent for exploiting, um, you know, gaps where she can insert herself as a mediator of this power or into this this power set. Um, uh, you've already mentioned it already, but the idea that she was using what she had in terms of her looks and her charm and her poise. Um, I think we could talk about yes. the the Iphigenia yes. episode. Yes, yes. Well, it's so st- I was absolutely intrigued by this because she does sometimes behave. One of the other things that drew me to her was sometimes she exhibits very strange behaviour. So it was very easy for people to criticise her. But what I really wanted to answer was the question, sort of why, you know. So the Iphigenia episode was, this was the age of the masquerade ball. And most of the 18th century, or a lot of the 18th century was spent at war. But one of the peace treaties were signed um, in 1748, at the end of 1748, and London exploded into a month of celebration. They were so fed up with the fighting and they'd been victorious. And there was this sort of glorious four weeks of constant parties, balls, you know, ridottos. And one of them was a masquerade at the Haymarket Theatre. And masquerades were hugely popular style of, but much criticised style of party that had sort of, the disguise element had started in Venetian gambling dens, so nobody would know who was turning up. But 
now they attracted sort of society and royalty and the king through this party and everybody came in costume. Um, so all sorts of things. They might come as sort of, um, you know, pride or a starry night or they'd imitate pictures or it's very, another popular thing was imitating Van Dyke portraits. It seems very odd to us, but they liked dressing up as people from the 17th century. So you see pictures <laughs> from then of people in slightly older period costume and you sort of think, okay. Um, but she decided to go, and the other great sort of trend was for dressing um, as somebody from a classical myth. So she dressed as Iphigenia, who had been sort of chain, a, a, a child who was sort of sacrificed um, and sort of, sacrificed on a rock. Now, in myth, she's very young and she's normally sort of very simply dressed. But in Elizabeth's interpretation, she became, it, it, it became the most sort of shocking outfit of the time. It was like a sort of Elizabeth Hurley, that dress moment. You know, everyone was staggered by this outfit. Now, it's so written about and so drawn in different ways, it's quite hard to sort of get an exact idea of what it was like. But how I imagine it is a sort of all sort of flesh-coloured. So if you're a few feet away from her, she'd look naked and sort of sheer on the top, possibly with no sort of stays and no corset and a sort of floaty skirt. So it was a very ethereal, sort of wafty kind of costume, but it was pure... It was pure attention-seeking. She wasn't so naive as to not realise the impact it would have. But the interesting thing for me was she had... This came after she'd had sort of tragedy in her personal life. The question was, was it a sort of... It was deliberate attention-seeking, but did it come from a place of strategy or did it come from a place of irrationality? <laughs> Still to come on the History Extra podcast. One of the things that struck me about her trial was when I realised it was at a vital... It took place at a vital moment in the American War of Independence. So, And yet she was on the front page of, the, of all the London newspapers. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring... The best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need indeed. We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. 
It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash history extra. Hola. Hello, this call is being translated. Abuela, listen to what my phone can do. Abuela, escucha lo que mi teléfono puede hacer. Wow, ahora dime sobre tu novia nueva. Wow, now tell me about this new girlfriend. Huh? Tú sabes lo que dije. You know what I said. Language is no longer a barrier, thanks to Live Translate with Galaxy AI on Samsung Galaxy S24 Ultra. Learn more at Samsung.com. Samsung account login required. Calls must be made using the native Samsung dialer. Without skipping us ahead too much, um, it's obviously all of it's in the book, um, but she's obviously this, this um, larger-than-life character who's hugely charismatic. She's doing well as a courtier, using her skills to broker power, and, um, and yet she's still got this secret marriage behind her. And, you know, without skipping us too far ahead, how, how much comes to be known about that? How does that come back to bite her? Well... She desperately, they've sort of agreed, they sort of pretend to act like it never happened. So it doesn't suit either of them. They go off each other and they're sort of hoping it will just go away. But unfortunately, she doesn't really, she tells very few people, if anyone. He, unfortunately, is a bit of a gossip. And although he doesn't want to be in it, Word gets round, he tells a great friend of his, he tells his brother. Enough people know that it's not going to stay secret. And in the end, he... And also, he doesn't really believe that they can long-term act like it never happened. So he eventually asks her for a divorce. Um, He spends years gathering evidence that she's been unfaithful to him which she has. so, And she is horrified because if she gets divorced, she won't, her reputation will be ruined and she won't be able to marry the Duke of Kingston, who she's fallen in love with. Um, so she fights back and she initiates a very sort of complicated legal procedure, which a lawyer friend of hers comes up with, in which to sort of, stop him from claiming they've ever been married. And so she suppresses some sort of servant evidence by buying people off and does marry the Duke of Kingston. And this all is all fine until he dies, at which point it turns into the mother of all inheritance battles because her husband, they have no children, it was too late... He adores her, leaves her all his money, which leaves his sister's children, who have not only expected an inheritance, but also spent most of it already by telling banks that they're entitled to it, outraged. And they decide to pursue her for um, bigamy in the hope of getting hold of the money. Now, unfortunately, Augustus Harvey, they are joined in this by Augustus Harvey's younger brother, 
who also desperately doesn't want his brother to be free to marry again because he wants, if he has no legitimate children, this younger brother will inherit. So you've got two siblings of the two husbands united in wanting to stop either of these people getting what they want, if that makes sense. Yes, yeah, it does. I think that the, the intrigues that come about by people just kind of grasping for any kind of inheritance. Grasping it has, is the word. Yeah. Right. And it has such a very real fallout for, for Elizabeth. Um, and I, I'm really interested, you've already mentioned this is the age of Pope, the age of um, you know, satirical writing that is just vicious. And and I guess this fall from grace for her once she's accused and put on trial for bigamy, how, how is that covered? And, and how do, can you give us a sense of the coverage of her trial and how it captured imagination of the time? Yes, well, it's it, it, one of the things that struck me about her trial was when I realised it was at a vital, it took place at a vital moment in the American War of Independence. So, and yet she was on the front page of the, of all the London newspapers, even though the we were about to go in for the most decisive battle of, of Long, the Battle of Long Island was weeks away and we were still trying to as I write I wrote in the introduction this this was the last conceivable moment where Britain could have kept America really it was the sort of final negotiation George Washington couldn't quite get enough people on board to fight the British there were enough British who wanted to make enough concessions that there might have been some sort of peace but it partly doesn't happen because everyone's obsessing about Elizabeth in who's being tried in Westminster Hall and the newspapers um, cover it in intimate detail it's an it's a sort of fiesta or a gala the nearest we could probably think of is a sort of royal wedding of Kate and William or something where there are it's very like that actually having written about that there are plans of who's going to sit where in the church there's a sort of program it's a it's a spectacle really who's wearing there's sort of 5,000 people come over four days to watch. There's a fight for tickets in advance because every peer, it's a trial by peer, so everybody in the House of Lords is going to decide her fate and each one gets given seven tickets. So they either give them to friends or they start selling them. And the newspapers, they write things like, we know that everybody in the kingdom wishes they were there. So we're going to give them a front row seat with our reporting. We're going to give the most intimate and the most colourful coverage. So there's the most extraordinary sort of reportage. Who's wearing what? Who said what? The whole thing is sort of covered by many people, actually, because in the audience, there's also lots of writers. There's James Boswell. There's um, Hannah Moore. There's it's a sort of literati event as well as a royal event. So there's lots of people writing about it from different angles, which is fascinating for a historian because you can read the official reports and the newspaper reports and the diaries of the 18-year-old girl who's sitting in the audience. Right. And that variety um, showcased in your account is such an interesting one. With There, there are some understanding accounts, um, but there are also such kind of... Um, vitriolic vicious Vitriol, ones that, yes yeah they just i think uh one 
thing you wrote about um, society not being able to tolerate that a rich widow kind of rising above his station almost. Um, and the one I wanted to ask about particularly was Samuel Foote's um, ridicule. What can you say about his his actions? Samuel Foote is the most fascinating man, playwright, and well, it was a bit of a case of like repels. So he too had come from the Devon gentry and he was sort of on the make like she was, but was also penniless, talented. But he had met her at one of her parties. She was a great party hostess and he'd met her at one of her parties. So he knew her, but not very well socially. But he knew the gossip about her. And so he wrote this a play based on her life and her secret wedding called A a Trip to Calais. And she was very thinly disguised as a character called Lady Kitty Crocodile, the the reference being Crocodile Tears, but for for the late husband. But he really wrote it because, as a threat, he was always short of money and he was trying to um, blackmail her by saying... If you give me £2,000, then I'll make sure this play isn't never gets put on. So that was his... He was quite resourceful and scurrilous. She wasn't having any of this, so she went on her high horse and said, I don't... I'm not giving in to blackmail, you know, sort of, uh, I don't negotiate with terrorists type thing. But she made the mistake of taking this public... Um, so with a sort of friend stroke employee called Reverend William Jackson, who was sort of acted as, as her PR man, they entered into a public battle with him through the newspapers with lots of letters. And it was one of those things that you see now when the best public relations advice would be say nothing, do nothing, but people find it impossible when they're in turmoil to not react sometimes. And she did that. So this newspaper war was, everyone was gripped. They were loving it. She sort of said, I'm putting on my, I'm guarded by the chainmail of my innocence. And everyone thought this was absolutely hilarious, you know, this ridiculous language. And so even though he was undoubtedly blackmailing her, everyone lost so you, you've mentioned already the variety of accounts. You've got, you know, that kind of um, character assassination there or that, that those blackmail attempts. You've got more sympathetic diary entries of the day. Um, how do you go about sifting through all of these accounts to, to um, make this picture as complete as possible? I think um, reading all these different accounts is the sort of... And I'm trying to understand, it's like piecing together a jigsaw because it's actually very satisfying to find another account because you sort of think, well, yes, but how did she feel about this? And that can't be the whole story. So I was actually very excited when I came across the account of 18-year-old Anna Porter, as she was, who became Anna Larpent, who was a sort of different generation or stroke and and stroke or different type of person who was immensely sympathetic and found the whole thing misogynist and cruel. And she was appalled by the way that the, the other society ladies were sort of revelling in the downfall of this 
woman that they loathed, who they were sort of half envious of and half sort of half hated. But and so actually, I found it very, I found it very fascinating. The more one reads from different angles, the more you think you're getting the three sixty view on a person. Because I think you know that phrase, history is written by the victors. It's sort of things that long ago just get written and you can sort of believe that that's how it was. So it's actually very satisfying to re-examine it from every angle and think maybe it wasn't quite so simple because the headline of her is always appalling woman, does terrible thing, goes to court, gets punished. But then you see what if society's just trying to distract it, itself from a terrible sort of war that no one can agree on because the, the American War of Independence is the sort of Brexit of its day in that they're arguing about it for years and years and years. Nobody can agree anything, and they're all fed up with it at the end. So that she's used, really, as a massive distraction. Yes, it's just staggering at this kind of time of such geopolitical significance that, I mean, she is on the front pages, but you've already alluded to how after this downfall she you know, re- reinvents herself. It's this, you know, the Becky Sharp kind of um, inspiration, if you like, that you've already mentioned. What can we kind of see in her character? What would you, what do you want people to know about the character coming to the book or perhaps leaving misconceptions aside of this kind of world? And What do I want people to know? Um, I suppose I, what I wanted to do was follow in her footsteps and find out what it was really like to be you sort of want to sort of understand try and understand what it was like to be that person then so what I want from my history is not only the story of the people involved but to taste that age I wanted to follow her footsteps in that not only in the predicament that she's in because you start writing about women in that era and later ones but this era I think is one of those not very covered parts of history you know at school we all studied the Tudors and the Victorians but there's this sort of great sort of gap I think in the middle where we only come at it through fiction really but she so I wanted to understand what it was like to be in her world but and that meant also to sort of follow her across Europe and she is a sort of early European, really. She settles in France, she settles in Russia, she settles in Estonia. It's to work to sort of find out what it was like to, I mean, I to be a pioneer, really. That was Catherine Osler. Her new book, The Duchess Countess, The Woman Who Scandalized a Nation, is published tomorrow, the 15th of April, by Simon and Schuster. There's plenty more on the Georgians and courtly scandals at historyextra.com. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt and Jack Bateman. Tune in again on Friday when Catherine Fletcher will be speaking about Leonardo da Vinci and the new TV drama inspired by his life. (laughs) 